I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. G'day and welcome to the Farms Vice Podcast with your host, Jack Creswell. Whether you farm it, service it, or just love it, this podcast is for you. We'll bring you the techniques and technologies you can implement into your day straight from the leaders and innovators themselves. Spread the Farms Vice so that we can reach more farmers right across Australia. Follow us on all of your socials at Farms Vice and let's get into this episode. This week we have Daniel Fisher, who is an agricultural scientist and technical vineyard specialist who's worked across the globe. And luckily for us, we have him back here in Australia, down in the south, working very hard. He's been across fancy and forward-thinking vineyards and he's bringing his skills back to Australia. He may even have his own drop out there on the market as well. So be sure to stick around to the end and you can hear what his favourite wine is, how watering can change the flavour of the wine and also leading into the ag tech for vineyards, Podatus, saving water for vineyards right across Australia and the globe. And like a very fine wine, this episode just gets better. Let's get into it. And just before we jump in, I should uh, I should give a, um, a shout out to, to country and, and to the uh, First Nations peoples who are the traditional owners of the land on which I'm uh, uh, residing at the moment, uh, the Bunwarang and the Wurundjeri peoples to their elders past present and future and, and hoping for a time when we can learn uh, about how to better manage the land in which they uh, that they traditionally own in which we find ourselves absolutely and what a way to start off this episode daniel official thank you very much for coming on um probably an episode that we haven't really had on the podcast but an area that we're looking to get into viticulture within australia and also you've got some global experience before we get down to agribusiness, as I say, let's talk about your background and your connection to agriculture and how did you get to this role that you're in today? Yeah, good question. I'm actually a city boy by, um, by trade. I was uh, I, I, you know, born in Sydney. I went to the University of New South Wales to study microbiology and, uh, and uh, medical genetics, and uh, that didn't really work out. 
Uh, I got as far as uh, getting into postgrad and realized that it was uh, there were better opportunities at the time in uh, plant genomics. And so a couple of years of, of, of hard labor just to build up some cash took me over to the US um, where I engaged in a, a PhD program, uh, program at the University of California in Davis doing some uh, research into the uh, genetics, biochemistry and ripening of uh, grape berries. And so a very specific topic, uh, it, it was working around uh, at the time, you know, genomics was still quite young. So we were laborious in the, in, the, in, in the laboratory to try to understand what the genetic background was into the flavor chemistry, uh, aromatic chemistry and sort of the raw chemistry of, wine, uh, of wines, uh, the musts, which is the unfermented uh, juice from wine grapes and, and how it all tied back to the, to the vine itself. Um, six long years of that um, gave me great exposure to a really clean understanding of the genomics of ripening and, and the processes that occur inside this uh, rather complicated uh, grapevine plant. And um, it also gave me access to a lot of beautiful information around ecology, ecosystem services, and, and how the sort of the soil food web really works um, through being exposed to you know, other researchers in, in that field, in that growing field. So I got sick of being a gene jockey. I got sick of the lab. I could, uh, through, you know, look down the desk. I could see uh, down the corridor, a little porthole window out the door that showed a leaf or two sometimes when the wind blew. And I realized that uh, that's where I needed to be was out there. Um, packed myself up and moved across to uh, Napa Valley where I got a job as a, um, initially just as a technical uh, researcher, sorry, a technical inspector of uh, vineyards to really learn the nuts and bolts of day-to-day -day farming operations and what can go wrong in the vineyard. You can spend your life learning the, uh, the biology and the biochemistry and the physiology and anatomy of, of grapevines, but go out into the field and learn what happens when the world touches them. And so I did all that and then managed to make my way up through the ladder with some vineyard management companies to become a, a technical agricultural scientist for a very famous uh, well-to-do vineyard management company working with at the time, all our vineyards were, you know, wines of $500 a bottle and up. So it was great experience. It was an amazing experience. It was, you know, research in the real world is, is, is far better than any research you could do in a laboratory yeah. because it, it applies back to the real world. There's no, um, you know, there's, you don't have the, that distance between them. It's there, you're out there, it's raw, you see what happens. And, um, and because we we're working with such esteemed estates, it really allowed me to build a knowledge base on managing irrigations. What happens when we really fine tune how we present water to the grapevine and what does the grapevine do in response to our irrigation strategies when it adds in all of the information that it has to gather as well from the environment, whether it's the climate, the, the day's weather, the season, soil, soil type, soil chemistry, the rootstocks we're, we're planting these things on and so on and so on. Yeah, beautiful. So I had a bit of background noise in the back. Um, so you've had a good start into viticulture and your understanding coming out of the lab and into what you see is out in the paddock in the field of getting into the vineyards and working with some pretty prestigious wines. Yep. How did you see that play out like for those in the lab at the moment? Do you think we should be connecting those working in the lab um, and see how their research connects with the real world? Yeah, I think there's a lot of focus, um, you know, particularly I believe Wine Australia is already starting to do it. They're, they're looking to get away from 
um, just research for the sake of research that gives you really interesting information. I mean, when I when I act as an uh, as a consultant, so that's my you know my my job has been for the last twenty years to be an international consultant using that information. I I will take as much information from any given vineyard. Let's say I'm in Mexico, and um, which is one of the places where I've worked, and I'm I'm looking at the soil type out there, and they've got four percent humidity and 35 degree days every day. There's no rainfall for forever, silty soils. And I'm looking at how irrigation practices are A, conserving water, B, affecting the vine growth and, and the wine quality. I can take that knowledge and go to another site where they're struggling with something and say, hey, here's something I learned out in Mexico. I think it'll really apply to you right here. Let's give it a go. And at the same time, I'm going to go to the research. I'm going to go to look at all the journal articles out there and say, all right, what are we looking at with respect to this particular problem. And you have to go through 30, 40, 50 journal articles to try to pull out little bits and pieces here and there, put it all together, then take it out to the field and give it a go. So it's a long convoluted process to take lab results or, or university research data and get it practically collated, simplified, and then put in a format that you can then convey the information meaningfully in a short period of time to a farmer who can exact a result because you've gone and done all that research. So we need to shorten that, that, that process, no question. From what I understand, the, the, the drive is exactly that, that we're looking more at meaningful, uh, meaningful inputs, research done in the field. And I think ag tech's really gonna accelerate that, being able to have real-time information come from sensors, putting sensors in the field. They're super inexpensive right now. They are really targeted to very specific problems. And if you partner yourself with a scientist, you're not telling the scientist, you know, the scientist isn't walking in and telling the farmer what to do. What's happening is, is the sensors are there. You partner with your, with your farmer and you say, okay, our sensor's feeding us this information. We can run it through a couple of algorithms or conversions of information. And then it's going to tell you exactly that, oh, you, you know, you put 5% too much phosphorus on last week. Let's cut that down for next time we have this same problem. You know, and it's real time. It's on the go. It's not waiting three years for peer review or anything like that. It's just, it's just benefit. Yeah, I think that plays out as the conversation right across agriculture for ag tech coming in play and simplifying it for the farmer to make a decision from that data fed back in. Uh, and as you say, it's pretty vital, like that variability in not applying the inputs that you probably would have in the past and you're saving on your costs, your time. Um, and I think that time save is probably the best bet for farmers and those within viticulture. Yeah, I agree. And I've spent half my time when I'm with farmers, I've spent half my time just translating, you know, the, the, the technical science to practical management. And it's not because farmers are dumb. It's not, it's the opposite. The farmers have information. They are extraordinarily gifted with the knowledge of where they stand and where they farm. And that information is extremely valuable. And if you take the information that comes out of technology and say, hey, farmer, go read the technology yourself, they're going to say, no, I've done this for, you know, X number of generations. Um, I mean, ultimately, if you think about artificial intelligence and, and we're using these big fancy words like artificial intelligence and algorithms and all of that. But if you take it back a step, what's artificial intelligence? It's just using a computer to help you simplify a lot of information. What's an algorithm? It's just a processing of knowledge so by something else so that you can then take the answer and use it uh, meaningfully. So it's the, the, the sensors and the information that comes from, they're not designed to tell the farmer what to do. They're designed to add to the farmer's institutional knowledge. You can't replace fourth or fifth generation knowledge. You can simply say, 
here's what our sensors are telling us. We're going to be able to, if, we, if we're reading this right, we're going to be able to make you more efficient, give you back your time, save you some money and reduce your footprint on the planet and on your budget. Yeah, I can see it like using that generational knowledge, you can actually input that into your ag tech and the way you operate your own farm. Um, and that's going to really enhance what you're doing. Right. The farm within the vineyard and all surroundings. Within yeah, the, key, the key is how you set up that partnership that that uh, you, you know, if you're uncertain about sensors or technology or where to start, it's having enough trust to say, let's do this as a partnership. I'll trust the scientists to process the information, come back to me. And then as a group, we discuss what it means. Yeah, 100%. So let's dive into the agribusiness side of it now. Um, great to hear from you and also grateful to have you on the podcast today. Let's introduce Ear Trumpet and Podatus. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, you did. Yeah. It's, uh, I always get ribbed for it. I did my best at coming up with a cool uh, uh, acronym for it. It's, it's, it's clunky, but I, I've stuck with it. So Everyone um, who designs their own acronym thinks it's always clunky, but everyone seems to fly off the wall with it. So get going. Yeah. I think Farms Advice or FA was never a good name, but it seems to be going all right now. Brilliant. Well, um, so Eartrump is my consulting company. Um, as yeah. I mentioned, I, was, I started in Napa. I started to get some offers to work in other parts of California and then ultimately got dragged around um, various um, vineyards of all sizes, both small, uh, you know, hyper quality focused sites to large commercial operations that were farming um, around the world and, and ended up, you know, before, um, before the borders were closed here in Australia and I couldn't get back overseas, my my list of clientele went from Russia to China to Mexico to Israel to Italy to you know various parts of the U.S. and and, and we had plans for Romania and and uh, you know various other Turkey various other countries. So what what had been happening since about 2015 is we'd really dialed in uh, Pedatus and Pedatus the acronym stands for uh, the physiolog physiologically anchored drought adaptive regulated deficit irrigation strategy. So if you're familiar with it, it's called it's a crop model. It's a it's uh, again another technical term. It's just a recipe for farming yep. using uh, the standard of the wine industry now, which is regulated deficit irrigation, where we where we predictably and deliberately restrict the amount of irrigation going to to grapevines during certain parts of their growing season to reliably adjust the wine quality and to stabilize yields and to improve other viticultural aspects. What I did with mine is that we started the research back in 2004 in Napa Valley, where we had the opportunity to play around with other people's vines. And it was so specific that we were able to, to really nail down differential strategies for rootstock, differential strategies for rootstock with a specific clone of a specific variety in a specific soil, at a specific site and it continued to do that. And what I did then is once we had a sort of a general concept of, of really refining how the irrigation strategy affected certain classes of flavor chemistry, things like the carotenoid family of, of you know, sort of that give all the perfumes like, you know, blueberries and, and violets and so on. When we knew that our strategies were actually deliberately manipulating, enhancing those certain characteristics, as well as doing things like bringing Gen, uh, overall alcohol levels down, bringing acid up in the wines. We knew we were onto something. And the next thing to do was to start stress testing the model in other locations and trying to find out where it was going to go wrong. And every time I took it to a new vineyard, I was certain something was going to go wrong and I'd have to start again. And it didn't happen 
it, I mean, it, there were times when things did go wrong. Obviously, you learn from those. You, those are the most critical parts of learning. But what ended up happening was as I started to take this around the world, what became clear to me was that there are certain components of the, the strategy of the model that were intransient. They occurred everywhere the same. And I attributed those to the genome of the grapevine. And, and grapevines are unique in that we've deliberately, as a, as, as a humanity, we've deliberately tried to keep our genome constant. You know, from Cabernet Sauvignon might be you know, anywhere from 500 to 2000 years old as a genome. And we hold it there. You know, we do these clonal reproductions of grapevines. And so great for wine quality, terrible as a farmer because of, you know, the disease cycle just compounds itself. But from a management perspective, if we know that our strategies can reliably and predictably create certain outcomes in the wine everywhere we do it every year, regardless of where in the world you are, then I think that's a crop model worth keeping. And so what happens then is, how do you differentiate yourself from your neighbors? Well, you have different varieties, different clones, different rootstocks, you have different soils, you have diff you're in a, in a specific region. And so the subtleties of those variables, including how the vintage looks, um, will add layers of complexity, layers of interest to your wine. We build the core, we build the basis, the framework that you have for your wine, which is a higher basis of quality, with respect to alcohol and acid and flavor compounds and color and, and mouthfeel and all of these things. And then on top of that come your little unique individualities that come from your site and even some of your farming. Uh, and, and, that, and that's how the model works. Yeah, I think farmers right across the board are looking for that predictability and how you brought that upon viticulture and how it's playing out now. And just using a model that go, can go away and react a little bit differently for each farm. You're saying soils are different everywhere just as right. the neighbors go as well. How have farmers improved that predictability within viticulture for you? Um, yeah, good question. The, the concern is always that you walk into someone's farm and, uh, you know, and you're a scientist, you're there four times a year or six times a year or whatever, and they're there every day. Yeah. And they say, I've been trial and erroring my irrigation. And they could be, it'd be as simple as somebody who just says, I know what I'm doing to uh, a technical agronomist whose job it is, is to analyze five, 10, 15, 20 properties they work with every single year and really set their dials and knobs and whistles for um, you know, reference evapotranspiration and, and, and where they are in the, in the crop cycle and so on and what they want that soil moisture um, limitations to be. What we do is we walk in and say, hey, I'm not gonna tell you how to farm, but I'd love to give you an opportunity to have a look. You know? Can we agree to work on a quarter of a percent or a tenth of a percent of your farmed acreage? We'll run our strategy next to yours, won't say anything. We just want to make sure it's done right. And then we'll have a look at it and we can run it again the next year and we'll have a look at it. And then you can decide how much or how little of our crop model you think would be valuable to you. What we've found is that 100% adoption has occurred across 100% of the properties we've tried this on. And the reason being, that when you dial in on the genome, you're not guessing anymore. You're not making decisions for the grapevine. You're not saying, oh, it looks like the rain's coming this week or there's some hot weather coming in the next four days. We're reading with our sensors, we're reading the end of the decision chain that the grapevine has to make. The grapevine's looking at soil moisture. The grapevine's looking at the weather. The grapevine's looking at where it is in its journey, whether it's flowering or berry growth or what have you. Grapevine's looking at all of those things. And then it's processing 
the management that we're doing, the stresses we've put in uh, on the vine with the soil moisture, the canopy management, all of those things, and then it's making its decision. And so all we have to do is read that decision that the grapevine makes at the end of its decision tree and then see, does this fit? Where are we on our crop model? Is it time to irrigate? Is it time to hold off? And with only a few waypoints in our model, it's actually a very nice, robust, uh, almost simple. So I don't want to use the word simple, but it's, a, it's an elegant system in that respect. And we've found the reason the adoption occurs is that A, we're always elevating wine quality or stabilizing wine quality and wine yield, but we're always saving water every single time. Yeah, I think as a farmer to make that one less decision is pretty vital out in the paddock. So telling me I need to water the vineyard um, coming up with the lack of rain coming in, for whether it be before harvest time or just getting ready for the season. How have you seen that adoption? Like you, it's quite unique for you to have a 100% adoption rate for that block, but how do you think conveying that working 1%, 10% of their vineyard and then rolling it out to 100%? Because a lot of ag tech, this is the biggest worry for them, um, that farmers actually see the value, utilise it, and just get onto the property, the farm, the vineyard. Um, how has that actually come about for you and how have you created that success? Yeah, the it, it, it's not an easy proposition. The thing that I see most, the, the words I hear most is I need to irrigate for confidence. Yep. There's a, we're, we're at too sensitive a time, we're close to harvest. I just wanna pre preserve and protect my berries. There's a heat wave coming. I'm gonna go out and irrigate. And our crop model is very strict about a period or periods when we back off on the irrigation because we are encouraging the grapevines to build the infrastructure, the biochemical infrastructure of the finished wine quality. And there are steps in the way. If you picture a factory, you don't just buy a building and then out the other end comes finished widgets. You have, to, you have to build up the machinery inside that builds the widgets. You have to build the, you have to get it, the, the power system or the battery system that powers the machines that makes the widgets. And you have to feed, build up the resources, the raw materials that you're gonna need, get them in storage before you start making the widgets. And this is how the grapevine works. It's the same way. So our strategy encourages the grapevine to maximize all of those steps. And if you go out and see that the weather, you feel like the weather's going to interfere with this, uh, with, with this, with you know the grapevines, and you want to go and irrigate for confidence. If it's during the wrong time, we have seen through experience every single time that we are the doing that will reduce your finished wine quality. Sometimes quite you know extremely measurably. There are some very sensitive times when you really don't want to break the model. So and it's hard to convey that. I mean, it's, that's why you do a half a percent or 1% of a vineyard. You have to show them. When we were in Mexico, they were watering daily out there. Um, and with those silty soils, they were losing 40% of their water to evapotranspiration. This is an extreme, yeah. I mean, sorry, evaporation. This is an extreme example. But um, these vine roots were all just wrapped up in the top 60 centimeters of the soil, you know, top 40 centimeters of the soil, because that's all that they were getting water into. Um, and with no resources, because it's the, this was the high desert, the, water, the irrigation was the only water they were getting. So I said to them, we were early in the year, and I said, just shut the water off on some Shiraz. And they looked at me like, you're crazy. You're absolutely crazy. I'm like, no, we're going to take three rows. We're going to shut the water off. Don't turn it back on until, uh, until harvest. 
which was like 11 weeks or something like that. And they're just like, you're insane. And so we did it. And the vines look really stressed, but it flowered, it set fruit, it made, it went through veraison and we got to harvest and the berries were tiny and they were the most delicious berries they had ever eaten in their lives to the point where they said, we won't be this extreme, right? Because we had set up trials. We'd set up a series of steps so that we would take the, the stress in stages in adjacent uh, groups of rows so that they could see the process is you take the stress to here, this is your outcome. You take more stress, this is the outcome. You take more, this is your outcome. When we took the most extreme example and they looked at them and said, we took these grapevines that were being babied daily to you're out on your own in the desert for the next three months. And they decided to make themselves a new wine brand, a wine tier that was five times the price of their highest wine because the wine quality was so good from these berries. And it's a learning process and it's an understanding process to say grapevines are way more resilient than most farmers would even dare give them credit for. Yeah, it probably gives the vineyard something to sell off. Like they very added a different tier of wine for their customers, consumers. Um, right. And, and you can't do that with, that with the whole vineyard. But for them, that was a, from an economic perspective, that was valuable because we could convert 1% of their farm to that extreme model and they could bring in 10% more income. Yeah, exactly. So for these vineyards, they're trying to um, control the balance of quality rather than just the inputs of that. But it's coming off the back of these inputs, isn't it? So yeah, yeah day- we're, we're trying to do both with Podatus. It's uh, because I'm still in a in a sort of a learning phase and a and a building phase for the startup. Um, even though you know we've got customers out there using it right now and they're and they're very content with. With the census system, it's only new. There've been many of these properties have been running this model for, for many years now in the manual phase, you know, where they just sort of they run the model and don't get the sensor data for refinement. But what we're doing now with with understanding, you know, taking the agriculture hat off or the scientist hat off and putting the business hat on, which has been my biggest learning um, curve and, and making mistakes daily that I'm, I'm happy to learn from. The 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 bifurcation of the uh, of our offering is to we have one set of we, we have one product that we're offering or one strategy we're offering to premium focus growers who really do need to get their quality up to compete in a crowded market get those two or three extra points on the wine get their you know their wine value up or even if they're uh, selling to to buyers from larger companies to have a wine or a, or a, a grape yield that clearly stands out quality wise to that big buyer who then says i'm going to shift from buying from that guy to buying from you more reliably, more consistently, because yours are just generally better, you know, and that's an economic value to that grower. For the um, for the larger producers, particularly those tied to you know the the Murray Darling um, or to the Goulburn um, irrigation systems, what we're doing is is we're measurably reducing water, and there's a huge cost to water. There's a cost to pumping. There's a cost to supply. There's a cost when um, on the on the market on the open market. If the government says you have to reduce your water this year because we're dry and agriculture elsewhere needs it, then we've got a system that says, yep, we can do that. We can make sure your water use is at its minimum and still maintain your yield and maintain your quality. Okay. And from that, there are downstream benefits. And I I think at some point, you know, talking about ROI is a very complicated thing when you're talking about wine quality, but in a downstream process, what we have measured is that farmers make fewer passes on their vineyards, right? The fewer hand passes, fewer tractor passes. So 
by reducing the water, you're not fighting excessive canopy. You don't have to go out and trim or tuck. We've, we've got a lot of vineyards where we have open canopy systems. The vine shoots naturally round off their growth at just the right time and just the right length. You know, the sort of the meter, 1.2 meters that we need for perfect ripening. And disease pressure goes down because our berries have more resilience. We see a more firm or a more rubbery skin. Um, and we see more, you know, more uh, uh, defense compounds. Ultimately, the flavor in, in a wine is uh, their defense compounds. And so there's more UV resistance, there's more heat resistance, there's more ability to capture photons and bounce them around those rings and, and send them off as long wave radiation at night. There's less internal damage to the berry from high heat and high sun exposure. So we're seeing disease control, uh, uh, you know, disease control requirements come down. Uh, and and so on. Do you ever see like vineyards working off a minimum water usage right the way through? Rather like we always look at it during drought. But what about is there actually benefits of carrying that through so we can conserve water in the long term, but also as the product, or is it beneficial to once we do have the adequate water, we can water them more than we would during a drought? Yeah. So. I work with a few properties and I've talked with a few properties who have limited supply on site and their supply is very seasonal and it's unlikely to be replenished during the growing season. Yeah. So they have to budget, they have to apportion water for certain periods, water for vegetative growth, water for berry growth, water to protect against heat or what have you during harvest and then water for post-harvest uh, recovery and fertilization and so on. Technology is really valuable to those people because you can put in your blocks, your water volumes, and you can apportion it just in a simple system. It could be a day, it could be a management database, it could be a spreadsheet. It's how you want to do it. When we use, when we tie in our, our crop model and our, our sensor system, we have just a couple of points during the growing season where we need to hit a minimum threshold and a couple of points where we need to exclude water. So we can easily work with budgeting based off of that. And the sensors tell you where you are on that, on, that pro, on that process. So either in advance of the first year or certainly in advance of the second year, water allocation becomes a very easy thing to do. Sorry about that. I thought my phone was on. Uh, all good. Silence. Yeah, so running through the questions I had up all for you, you sort of naturally covered them all off. Um, but. For yourself, where do you see viticulture and the world of vineyards going in the next five to 10 years with the role of ag tech playing within Australia, but also the broader knowledge of global vineyards? Um, so, yeah, so you've just asked me um, where I think viticulture will be in the next five to 10 years, particularly with respect to technology and adoption yeah. of technology. There are a lot of groups out there right now that are working on tech for, for viticulture. I, I really hope to see two things. The first thing is, Adoption of technology should no longer be something that farmers are averse to just because of algorithm aversion. And that would come from people like myself and any of the suppliers out there really trying to find a collaborative way to work with farmers to, uh, if not translate, but just to, to simplify it so that it makes, them, it makes their lives truly more convenient, gives them back their time and saves them money. You know, genuine return, whether it's water, whether it's budget, whether it's um, quality, you know, some of these intangibles, I always get asked about return on investment with the high quality producers. And it's not an easy, 
measure them. And I've got, actually got a mate who's an information scientist. I've asked him to come up with a really cool algorithm to measure return on investment for the quality-minded grower yeah. because it's really, really important. We see it, but I can't right now say it's exactly that. Yeah. But the confidence and the comfort with adopting technology needs to come hand in hand with the, with the people who are bringing the technology. Farmers get knocked on, doors get knocked on daily. Oh, here's a piece of, uh, uh, you know, this thing will really help you. Here's a dendrometer or blah, or, or what have you. And so that collaboration needs to be front and center to give the grower the ability to use it meaningfully, make it a relationship and make it a long-term relationship. So I get that. The other thing I think should happen is that anybody who's coming into this industry, and this is something we're trying to do ourselves. And in fact, we are doing, we are actively working on it with the goal to, be able to make our piece of information a nice add-on or an adjunct to somebody else's larger platform. Because yeah. there's going to be a lot of comp competitive platforms, management platforms out there for, you know, the vineyard management in terms of labor, wages, division of roles, um, application of, of pesticides, fertilizer, budget, everything should be able to be in one place. So as these platforms get more sophisticated, things like ours would be really nice when they can just be an extra added feature that ties in and you crop your crews out there and they note that it's, you know, we're at fruit set right now. Oh, and then the, so it goes into the database because they're recording phenology. And then our system says, hey, here's one of our interesting, uh, our interesting waypoints. Let's have a look at the model. And then it can feed the information the, to, the, to the farmer to say, are you at your target or are you not? Let's make some, um, some changes. You know, here's something to add into your, to your farming. And then the farmer doesn't have to think, oh, I've got to go back to that tech or I've got to go back to that tech. What am I doing? Where, where am I at with this? Just everything should seamlessly feed in and be nice feature additions that allow both the technology as it's invented to organically grow around the world and, and around uh, viticulture, as well as make every grower, every viticulturist feel more comfortable that they really are getting the value out of technology and they're getting the value out of, out of these, these mixed systems. Yeah. I see that as the pair of one, there's actually like pear tree are doing it within like broad acre livestock. And I'm not sure if they'll be rolling it out into different areas of the industry, but I think farmers, they're starting to utilize it, adopt their technology, but yeah, like the stress of not really stress, but the time of going into different applications and housing that into one sort of central spot where you can, configure your own decisions off the back of the data that you fed from your sensors as such. Right, right. And, and then just beyond that, in terms of the future of viticulture itself, there's a real push right now to be conscious of water resources and climate change. And farmers who are resistant to changing their wide spacing vineyards with own rooted Shiraz should probably start to rethink that market. The marketplace hasn't stopped shifting towards uh, alternative varieties or new varieties that are better suited to our climates on rootstocks that are better suited to the increase in disease uh, that we are seeing around the world. You know, we're more interconnected than we've ever been. There are more visitors to farms. There are more opportunities for, for diseases to come in. They don't go away. They only come in. And so if you as a farmer aren't adopting better strategies, such as, you know, something as simple as a rootstock that's better suited to your soil, which can reduce your fertilizer costs in the long run, you reduce your water use in the long run and ties nicely to a variety that the market's going to drink for the next 20 years, then that's, that's crazy. And if you're not looking at ecological systems where you start to, rather than try to, you know, just sterile spray the, your vineyard and keep the rest of the world out, 
it's going to be a harder and harder battle with resistance, with um, pressure of, you know, of new species, new diseases coming in. The best way to go is these, are these um, systems that I've been working on with a lot of my growers, which are these eco-friendly vineyard floors. And we invite the outside world in. We're building really complicated ecosystems that go in harmony with the vineyard. We're bringing in um, native plants. We're bringing in habitat for insects that are local and endemic to the area for biocontrol. What, what's happening there is that the water use out of the soil goes down when you're using plants that are you know, traditionally in that area. You, if you can structure it such that your habitat is available, not just for a release of a, say, a biocontrol species, and this can go for any agriculture. You know, if you're talking about broadacre, do this around your hedgerows, do this around your perimeters, do it around your, your islands, your, you know, your buffer islands and so on. Bring in diversity, bring in natives, allow biology to thrive. It'll take a bit of time for the perturbations in the ecosystem to stabilize. What you will build is, a, is an ongoing system that works for you at night, weekends, whenever, with biocontrol, with, with nutrient cycling, with um, pulling nitrogen out of the atmosphere and putting it into the soil with uh, erosion control. Uh, and all of these things both improve your farming because your costs come down, your biology is more balanced. Um, and you can look into, you know, and you're ready for a future carbon market, for example. Yeah, 100% believe with that. You'd be amazed like the kind of takeaways other sort of farmers would take away from this episode. Like as a sheep farmer myself, there's a lot of similarities there that what's happening in viticulture is happening right across agriculture. Um, and you're in the thick of it with ag tech. So I actually came across you through the Oz Agritech Association. So it's great to see that you're a part of that and housing that yourself and seeing how you can go forward within viticulture and help out those farmers on the other end. So it's always great to connect with you from a sheep farmer to one that's out playing in vineyards from the lab into the vineyards. Great to catch up and have you on the FarmsWise podcast. I really appreciate it, Jack, and thank you for what you're doing, getting the word out there and trying to really um, cement, just like the, as the Oz Agritech environment, it's all about just making relationships and, and building relationships so that people learn about each other and they learn from each other as a collective community, and that's what we're trying to build. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? So before you go, what's your one piece of farms advice that you'd give to someone working within the vineyards, like a vineyard owner? Uh, what do you mean? What would you like pass on to a vineyard owner for adopting ag tech and how it can play a role in benefiting their own operation? I think the, the, the first barrier is to accept that there's an opportunity to improve what you're doing yeah. and then take it slowly. Even if it's just one simple piece of technology, just, you know, open it up, have a look and, and, um, and make yourself available to, uh, collaboration with someone who can help you learn from that device. Yeah, I think that's pretty powerful. We're taking it slowly, adopting that ag tech, whether you start off with a spreadsheet and then move on into that platform is a thing that we've done for ourselves on our farm, but also vital for other farmers as well. So Daniel, how can we contact you at Podatus Ear Trumpet? Yes, so I'm at... Um, um, Padatis.com. You can find me. That's P-A-D-A-R-D-I-S.com. You'll find my contact information there. You find a little bit about the Padatis model. And then um, just once you contact me, if you've got anything at all, any questions at all about ecosystems in, inside vineyards and how to build these properly, or you, you know, looking at redevelopment of vineyards and you need to get to the modern, modern era, 
Um, all of that comes through uh, ear trumpet. It can come with or without the Podata system, but it's all, you know, certainly within the Podata system, we offer that level of knowledge. So if you go out there and get the tech and get the sensors in for, for irrigation strategy, we're also offering everything else from the universe of grapevines on top of that, any knowledge, anytime. Great stuff. Well, I'll have all the links in the show notes so people can go off and have a look at what you do. Thanks so, thank you so much, Jack. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Farms Advice podcast. It is produced by Advertise Digital, the agribusiness marketing specialist. Go to farmsadvice.com.au for more information on this episode and the others before and spread the Farms Advice. If you love this episode, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe as it helps other farmers find us too. But until then, next Tuesday, keep on farming. In the spirit of reconciliation, the Farms Advice podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of country for Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Also, whilst I've got you, if you're an ag tech company, a startup, and you're delivering products and services to the agricultural community of Australia, please get in touch at hello at farmsvice.com.au and I'd love to get you out there and see how we can help other farmers find these efficiencies, productivity levels, and take us to the next level, all about helping each other out and seeing how we can grow together. So get in touch. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.